In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the show Faith and Freedom on Voice of Islam Radio. My name is Azar Chaudhary and I'm joined here by my co-presenter Khalid Hayat. Khalid, assalamu alaikum. Before we delve into today's topic, which is the origins of freedom of religion or belief, let me highlight a quote on the importance of freedom of religion or belief by a human rights defender who states that freedom of religion is first and foremost a human right. So Khalid, quite an um, important quote. Yes, yes. So that was um, Joel Fiss, a uh, member of the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights Panel of Experts on the Freedom of Religion and Belief. And I think it's quite key there that she states it's a first and foremost right, which means that it's not a secondary right. It's something that is a cornerstone of society. And I think it's something that we're going to try and establish as part of this series is what is freedom of religion, um, the history of freedom of religion, and how important it plays a role in modern society today. Um, So before we get into sort of how and what freedom of religion is, I think it's important to start with the origins of freedom of religion and where it first began. And I think, Azar, you've done a little bit of research around that topic. Yeah, absolutely. And the the first ever time who the concept of freedom of religion, I believe, was termed was by the Christian apologist Tertullian in 197 AD, uh, where he referred in his literature to freedom of religion as libertas religionis, the Latin for freedom of religion. And what we see from even before then is a quite toleration of freedom of religion or belief within the Persian empires as well as the Greek and Roman empires. And Cyrus the Great, the king of the Persian Empire in the 6th century BCE, is famous for his policy of religious tolerance, which of course predates the Christian apologist Italian even Mm. and his support for freedom of worship was quite remarkable this is described in the Cyrus cylinder which is an ancient clay cylinder inscribed in Akkadian cuneiform script that was discovered in the ruins of Babylonia in Mesopotamia in the 19th century and in the cylinder interestingly it contains a record of the conquest and building projects of Cyrus who conquered the city of Babylon and within the cylinder He allowed, it's written that Cyrus conquered Babylonia and he allowed the people to return to their own lands, build their temples, and he generally treated them with benevolence. And the cylinder even states that Cyrus gave the order that the sanctuaries of the gods who lived in all the lands be returned to the places where they were previously. So this policy of religious tolerance and support for freedom of worship was a significant departure from the policies of the previous rulers of Babylonia. This shows that religious toleration existed with us for many, many centuries before. We then move on to Alexander the Great and the Greek and Roman rulers at that time, which is around sort of 350 BC to 300 BC, where rulers generally followed a policy of religious toleration, allowing local religions to flourish as long as they paid homage to the state religion. But there were several notable exceptions, in particular to the Jewish people, as a result of their insistence that they, A, must acknowledge uh, their own God, but also some of their religious practices, such as circumcision, which Greeks saw as abhorrent. Yeah, so so it seems like, you know, well before the established states that exist today, there was this conflict that potentially existed between early religious faiths and sort of empires that ruled at the time. And so, you know, you're you're making mention of both the Persian Empire and the Roman and Greek empires. Was there any particular conflict that existed between religion and the state at the time? Absolutely. I mean, this issue of the state and religion came to the fore with Jesus. 
Jesus being a victim of religious intolerance as a would-be Messiah. That, I think, brought to the fore the fact that the state really does care what sort of beliefs you have. And if those beliefs don't conform to the state, that could lead to significant consequences. Of course, Jesus was then crucified and popularly believed to have died on the cross, but uh, and the Muslims believed that he did not die on the cross. He was actually taken off the cross, survived it, and then migrated to what we know today as Kashmir in, in Pakistan and in India to unite the 12 lost tribes of Bani Israel, the people of Israel. But again, nonetheless, it shows that the idea of religious tolerance really digressed uh, during the Roman times. Several emperors, including Emperor Trajan and Emperor Nero, who blamed Christians, of course, for the fire of Rome, and Christians then went essentially underground to the Roman networks underground and underneath Rome and hid there for a significant period of time to avoid this persecution that they faced from wider Roman society and even something that is mentioned within the Holy Quran. A brighter future then emerged for Christianity in particular in the early 4th century, so this is around 313 AD, uh, with the Edict of Milan that uh, recognised Christianity as a legal religion. But then, Khalid, of course, we see the Islam, we see the Islamic era, and uh, with Islam comes quite some revolutionary ideas relating to freedom of religion or belief. Yeah, that's, that, that's very right, Azar. So there was about a period of fighting that lasted around 100 years um, before 620 AD, which involved Arab and Jewish inhabitants mainly in Medina. But the, the concept of religious freedoms or freedom of religion for Muslims and Jewish folk and pagans had not been declared until the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, written the uh, constitution of Medina. In early Muslim history, off the back of this early constitutional concept, um, most Islamic scholars maintained a level of separation from the state, which helped to establish some elements of institutional freedoms. So following the demise of Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the Islamic caliphate later guaranteed religious freedoms under the conditions that non-Muslims could enjoy equal rights under the laws of property, contract and obligation. In literature itself, Islam made no distinction between religion and the temporal state. Despite this, until the modern era, Islam was ahead of its time on the question of religious freedom. People of the book, as referred to in the Quran, namely um, Jewish and Christian folk, were allowed to practice their religion in Muslim lands. The Quran declared, let there be no compulsion in religion. And that's chapter 2, verse 257 of the Holy Quran. The concept of religious pluralism actually existed in classic Islamic ethics and Sharia as well, so that's Islamic law. As religious laws and courts of other religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, were usually accommodated within the Islamic regal framework, and that's seen in sort of early Islamic civilizations and caliphates, including the Al-Andalus civilization. In medieval Islamic societies, and again, we're looking at sort of between the 11th and 13th century here, you know, there was a concept of a qadi or an Islamic judge. And these Islamic judges were actually not allowed to interfere with matters of non-Muslims unless the parties voluntarily chose to be judged according to Islamic law. And so you had these other legal frameworks that existed independent of Sharia law, such as Jewish courts, which were Khalaka courts. And of course, Islam went uh, even further than that. Yes, correct. So Islam actually started incorporating aspects that many Muslims would have thought abhorrent as practices of the time. And so you're 
enabling non-Muslims to operate their own courts following their own legal systems that did not involve other religious groups or capital offences or threats to public order. Non-Muslims were allowed to engage in religious practices that were usually forbidden by Islamic law, such as the consumption of alcohol and pork and just any other concept that potentially religious practices of Islam would have found repugnant. According to a very famous Islamic scholar, Ibn Qayyum, and the, he, he existed at sort of the turn of the 14th century, he allowed non-Muslims to have the right to engage in religious practice that even offended Muslims under the condition that these cases would not be presented to Islamic Sharia courts. So it was a mutual respect and understanding between faith and religious systems that though they can coexist, they don't necessarily have to be dictated and governed by the same principles. And so you can see that Islam had a fairly revolutionary effect on how freedom of religion should be perceived. And there was a concept of religious pluralism and the coexistence of multiple religions within the same temporal state. But we saw sort of this concept start to evolve into Western society, the modern civilization. And I think the Treaty of Westphalia was probably the first sort of notable step towards that kind of principle. Absolutely. Uh, the Treaty of Westphalia was a turning point in you know, modern Western civilization because it developed Europe's ability to live with religious diversity. And the Peace of Westphalia, which was signed in 1648, uh, afforded international protections to religious groupings on the continent. Now, of course, at the time, we didn't have the religious pluralism that we see today of Islam, Hinduism, etc. It was primarily Christianity that uh, was afforded those rights within the Roman Empire. But nonetheless, we see a positive step towards um, you know, freedom of religion or belief in, in the West. Of course, this is at the time where there's a bloody warfare going on between Catholics and Protestants in England, and which at the time brought thinkers to the fore, such as John Locke, whose essay of civil government and letter concerning toleration played a significant role in the Glorious Revolution of 1688 and later in the American Revolution. And Locke famously writes that the care of souls cannot belong to the civil magistrate because his power consists only in outward force. But true and saving religion consists in the inward persuasion of the mind, without which nothing can be acceptable to God. So really laying down emphasis upon the fact that actually the primacy is with an individual's conscience rather than what the state thinks an individual must and should do. And really emphasizing that freedom of religion or belief is the core human right for an individual. Those ideas find shape within the American Declaration of Independence written by jo Thomas Jefferson Khalid. And I'd be great if you could allude a bit more on that. Yeah, sure. So you're starting to see the institutionalization of these sort of modern nation states. Um, so, you know, the new frontier or the United States of America considered one of the newest countries being born in modern civilization, born out of this concept of freedom. And so you're seeing the Declaration of Independence written by Thomas Jefferson in 1776. Um, it states that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested or burthened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief. So th that was taken from the 1779 Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. So, so it clearly seeing here uh, a role of primacy of conscience and a separation between the secular state and the individual person's belief. And 
although at the time this was considered a, a, a revolutionary freedom, empowering individuals to have their own belief away from the state, um, and and this was in fact the first liberty that was guaranteed under the U.S. Bill of Constitution, saying Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So yeah. it was very clear that in the nation state that was established with the Americas that there was a separation between the secular state and freedom of religion, but that people's religious beliefs were their own. It was their own conscious and they could do with it what they wanted. Yeah. But you see some of a regression when you move back towards Europe and uh, Western civilizations in Central Europe in particular. And that's particularly at the turn of the French Revolution. And this was around the 18th century. And, and you're seeing sort of a, a different attitude towards the question of religious liberty. And so you see the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which was signed in the, early, uh, in, in the late 18th century, um, you know, that no one shall be disquieted on account of his opinions. So th- th- it's quite clear that you are allowed to have your own primacy of conscience and religious belief, um, including his religious views, provided their manifestation does not disturb the public order established by law. And here is where you start to see the first inklings of sort of a regression of the freedom of religion concept, the idea that if you're allowed to perceive yourself, it has to be within the eyes of the state and whether the state allows for your concept of relief and religion to exist freely. And so you see this kind of separation between what the way that the Americas were taking it and the way that the French Revolution took it. And I think, uh, you know, you couldn't even serve as a pub- in public office if you had faith um, within the French Revolution. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right, that there was a, a fairly strict model of what civil discourse could include around um, religious freedoms. And, you know, like you said, you can't have a clergyman even hold office after the French Revolution. Whilst, you know, in US discourse where you created this secularization of state and religion, you could still have this kind of discourse of having, you know, people of the faith hold public office. But, you know, that was just the start. And it's sort of, there's a sort of a rolling towards a further regression during the totalitarian regimes in the Second World War. And as you did a little bit of research around that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think we see a stark turn uh, and regression backward with the turn of the sort of early 20th century, with the advent of Soviet communism in particular, and also Nazism, that presented a threat to religious freedom. Because, of course, communism saw, um, and Marx famously wrote in one of his books, that religion is the opium of the masses. And they really expunged anything religious from their museums and libraries, etc. After this sort of horror of the Second World War, we see the establishing of the United Nations as the bastion of international law. And with it comes the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, including Article 18, which is the basis of a freedom of religion or belief afforded to everyone in this world. And, you know, even the communists then begrudgingly accepted the declaration because a cynical attitude that it was only powerful as the paper it was written on, which is is an interesting perspective to take on Article 18. And it also must be noted, actually, during this time that Sir Mohammad Zafrullah Khan, who was the first foreign minister of Pakistan, played a pivotal role in this as well. It played a pivotal role in the creation of the state of Pakistan, but also likely played a role in the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations in 1948. This declaration is a landmark document that sets out the fundamental rights and freedoms that are entitled to all human beings, regardless of their race, uh, religion in particular, gender or national origin. 
Now, that is a sort of quick, brief introduction to the topic. It is not exhaustive by any means, but it gives you a sort of quick and important timestamps uh, within history of the evolution of freedom of religion or belief. Uh, we were privileged also to earlier be joined in the studio via phone in the United States by Professor Jocelyn Sassari. Professor Jocelyn Sassari holds the Chair of Religion and Politics at the University of Birmingham. At Georgetown University in the States, she is a Senior Fellow at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace and World Affairs. Since 2018, she's been the T.J. Dermot Dunphy Visiting Professor of Religion, Violence and Peacebuilding at Harvard Divinity School. Her most recent publications are We God's People, Christianity, Islam and Hinduism in the World of Nations, uh, What is Islam and Islam, Gender and Democracy in a Comparative Perspective. We discussed quite a few things with Professor Cesari when we started off with the characterization of religion in modern society. So we'll go straight to that now. Religious communities predate uh, nation states. It's true everywhere, including in Western Europe. And because we have in the modern periods reduced religion to personal beliefs, we tend to forget that religion, especially if we talk about relation-based communities and monotheistic religion, but it's also true for other traditions, they don't come for individuals. They mm. come to build a community. Yeah. And so the major prescription of religion, if you look uh, and compare, is about building this community. Think of the Ten Commandments in the Bible. It is not about personal uh, freedom. <laughs> it is about the duties and obligation, and with it call, come also some kind of uh, rights. But first and foremost is what do I have to do as a group to maintain or to create this revelation-based community? And we have completely forgotten that. And it's interesting because I was trained in sociology, and the founder of sociology, Emile Durkheim, among others, uh, the founders of sociology have all insisted on the fact that the first institution that gives social coherence is religion. Hmm. And so the modern political community, as we know it, around the nation state, comes later. Yeah. And the first thing... The first thing that it will do everywhere, and it starts in Western Europe, before the nation state, the Latin Christendom, the Roman Catholic uh, uh, kingdom, um, governs everything. So quite quite an interesting take by the professor Khalid on on how she characterizes religion in in today's society. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um it's unique that she was speaking about the concept of individual belief and the sense of community and tradition and how that's been impacted and the way that the nation state has played a role. And I think, you know, as the discussion moved forward, we actually asked us sort of what role the nation state played in the concept of freedom of religion. And so I think we should probably let her say her piece. Once the state takes on activities and uh, domains of uh, regulation that were before under the, the purview of the church. This is also the moment of the Westphalian system. That's the moment where the state comes as the only institution that can wage war. And this yeah. is true until now. Yeah, so, so this, this idea of monopoly of violence. Yes, exactly. And with this idea, 
it will be exported everywhere because, as we know, you cannot exist politically as a self-determined group if you are not a nation state. Yeah. We can, you know, try as a, as a, as a options, and we are all, after, after all, the children of centuries of socialization where the nation state gains, keeps the monopoly of the power. So yeah, again, fascinating insights into you know the the state being the modern perpetrator when it comes to for violations, hiding in plain sight, as it were. Yeah. We then, of course, discuss this unique pluralism in Islam again, because you know I, I know apologies if we are repeating what we've done earlier, but it, it is unique because I think Professor Sasari herself wanted uh, to emphasize that fact so what we'll go back uh, to that section as well where she discusses actually how islam is miles ahead when it comes to religious tolerance in comparison to any other religion and how that model should be adopted by the world today for religious tolerance so we'll listen to that this is what i call the beginning of political islam and we never look at it that way, because before the nation state, unlike what people think, and you mentioned the, the Medina time, actually having done a lot of comparative work, I can tell you that Islam was a very unique pluralistic monotheism, in the sense that you didn't need to be a, a Muslim to coexist in the Muslim empire. The, the limit was uh, uh, paganism or idolatry, but as, as Jews, Christians, and other faiths actually even look at the Indian subcontinent, the Mughal didn't convert to kill all the people of the Indian subcontinent, right? I mean, and, and it was quite a stretch in the sense that in, in Hindus were not people of the book. Yeah. So the pluralism has always been there, but yeah. this was before the state. The state, like every state, it's true not only for Muslim state, it's true for everywhere. And I show this for India today now. It's based on some nationalization means homogenization. It's true everywhere. So what did the Muslim leaders do? They consider that being a member of Islam and being a national should be linked together. Yeah. You you are Turk because you are Turk. You are you speak Turkish, not only ethnic Turkish, but you are Muslim, which was unthinkable. Because if I were Greek Orthodox in Istanbul at the time of the Prophet, I was part of the Ummah. I was not excluded, and that's what has disappeared everywhere. So the politicization of Islam starts there. That's why you have what I call the second wave of the Islamists, the, the whole laws and blasphemy, they are state laws. That's why Pakistan is unfortunately a case in point. A lot of the uh, uh, limitation and restriction and abuse are inscribed in the law. It's the only state where the Hamadiyya are um, illegal by constitution. Yes, it's truly fascinating stuff. I mean, it's the idea that we're looking back centuries to a principle that was established during early Islam in sort of 620 AD beyondwards. Yeah. And it's the idea that she feels arguably that system should exist today, that we should have a, a, a pure separation between religious freedoms and the secular state and allow religious pluralism to exist in the same way that existed in those early Islamic civilizations. It's it's fascinating. Absolutely. Um, and I know that she, we asked her opinion on what we think is the future of 
sort of freedom of religion and, and ways that we can potentially resolve these issues. So we'll, we'll take it back to her. I mean, the way everywhere, and that's interesting because, um, for example, in Iran, the most interesting thinking you have today about pluralism and tolerance come from uh, philosophers and religious figures who, who have lived under an Islamic republic. And they say the only way is to remove Islam from the state. That's the only way. And to rebuild this kind of independence. I mean, the Islamic tradition is the most thought-provoking, plural, that exists until the nation-state. And what what wise words there at the end? Uh, separation of religion and state uh, is the solution. And going back to the Islamic era and those times is where we got it right. And since then, actually, we have progressed. But actually, all in all, we have regressed when it comes to freedom of religion or belief. Quite ironic, quite distressing, but also quite relevant as to why we've launched this series into freedom of religion or belief. And actually, in later episodes, we will discuss precisely what four violations mean uh, and how communities are impacted, uh, etc., So we've come to the end of this week's episode, and before we conclude, I'll read out a quote from His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, who's the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community at the recent Freedom of Religion and Belief conference in London back in July, where he states that freedom of religion and belief are core human rights that must be preserved and protected for everyone and everywhere. Though we are living in an increasingly secularized world in which people are moving away from religion, Many millions of people around the world continue to adhere to religious values and it is essential that they are able to live their lives according to their beliefs and convictions. It's very wise words there from His Holiness. This brings us to the end of the show. I'd like to thank my co-host Khalid Hayat for joining me as well as Professor Jocelyn Sasari for joining us all the way from the United States for her useful insights. I'd like to mention that the views and opinions mentioned by the panellists are their views only and do not necessarily represent the views and outlook of the Voice of Islam radio. For feedback and more information or to listen to this episode, you can either log on to www.voiceofislam.co.uk or you can also access this episode on YouTube or SoundCloud. Please do also email us with any questions or queries you may have on faith and freedom, that is one word, at voiceofislam.co.uk. That is faith and freedom at voiceofislam.co.uk. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.